Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. How many of you keep a diary? Not just like writing, you know, the dates on the diary, but how many of you reflect on and keep something of a diary? I'm seeing maybe half a dozen hands. Um, I've tried keeping a diary for many, many years, not because I thought my life was remotely important or interesting. Um, The game changer for me, the reason that I was into diary keeping, uh, was I really love buying leather journals. I just got two here. You could literally fill a bookshelf with all the leather journals that I have bought. And if you were to look through them, you would discover that if I've written in them at all, I've only written in about the first two or three pages. Because for me, it's all about this excitement rather than writing things down in a diary. I've actually read through the first few pages in each of those diaries before this morning and was reminded afresh that there is nothing massively important going on in my life. You could steal my diaries and never learn any hidden secrets about the precious life of Jim. It's just, that's not my life. It's not that exciting. And that's okay. But I've stopped writing journals about them. Um, Paul's life is very different, isn't it? Paul's life is mega, mega different to mine. His life is the very definition of interesting. But what we've got in verses 12 to 18 isn't just a diary entry from his prison experience. It's much more than that. This text is a life-changing description of how we need to think about life. Now, you may or may not be very interested in Paul's prison experience. And that's fine. Um, I hope in time you might be genuinely interested to know what happened, but that may not have been the thing that got you up out of bed this morning. All of us, however, need to know how we are to view suffering and injustice. Every single one of us needs to know how we're going to be responding to suffering and injustice. And that's what's at the heart of these verses. Here's here's the big idea, as best as I can distill it, of these verses in one little sentence. Living life with the ultimate goal of seeing Christ preach changes everything. That's the big idea. Living life with the ultimate goal of seeing Christ preach changes everything. And what I want to help us all to see are three aspects of that big idea that Paul explains as he works through this section. First lesson, they're all going to hang on this phrase that loving Christ most and longing for others to love him too, that's the big idea, 
first lesson changes the way we view suffering and injustice. Now, the Philippians loved Paul. We know that. We, we know that because of the history. Uh, if you are new to our church family, we've been seeing that about 10 years or so before this letter was written, Paul was the guy who actually founded this church in Philippi. So lots of them had come to Christ through Paul. And then for that intervening maybe 10 years, this church family has financially supported, prayerfully supported Paul. Most recently, they've even sent a guy called Epaphroditus. We'll get to him later in the book. He went not only to bring a gift, but actually to support and care for Paul and to find out what was going on so that the Philippians could keep on loving and caring for him. And Paul knows all that. That's why, if you look at the very beginning of verse 12, Paul begins, Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, as Paul's way of, in pen form, sitting the Philippians down, looking straight into their eyes and saying, I know you care. I really want you to hear this. And what he goes on to say is what has happened to me. Now, again, if you rummaged through my old diaries, the what has happened to me bit would be some uneventful period. Well, these ones from my days in a law firm. Now, that wasn't the case for Paul. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, I'd love you to turn back to Acts chapter 21. I want to just briefly, very briefly, skim what has happened to Paul from Jerusalem to Rome, that he's thinking of when he says, what has happened to me? So if you're in Acts uh, 21, uh, Paul's arrived in Jerusalem by Acts 21. He'd longed to be there for some time. Um, If you jump back to chapter 20, verse 23, despite the fact that the Holy Spirit has warned him that prison and hardships are facing him. But chapter 21, he's wanted to get there. And in verse 28... Some local Jews who hated him had worked out that one way that they could try and get rid of him was to trump up some charges that he had defiled the temple, even though he hadn't. And that charge was enough to get him arrested. But before he could be taken to the barracks, Paul does what Paul always does, which is he seizes the opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And that riled the crowd. So you look chapter 22, down in verse 22. Um, the crowd gets so angry that they want to try and kill him. And the commander of the barracks, verse 24, realizes that he needs to do his job uh, in one sense to save Paul from the mob, but also then suggests that we need to flog Paul and interrogate him, which Paul only avoids, verse 25, because he reminds them that that's not something you're allowed to do to a Roman citizen. Then chapters 23 to 28, you can read them when you get home, they will record for you the way that Paul was falsely accused was physically abused. There were multiple attempts on his life. And he was kept in prison, not because he'd actually done anything wrong, but because the prisoner officers were both being bribed and wanting to curry favor with the Jews. (laughs) None of us have ever met Paul, but I hope that inner sense of injustice is starting to stir in your heart. And he's not even left Jerusalem. When he eventually gets put on a boat to sail for Rome, his boat is shipwrecked en route. Nearly everybody dies when, wonderfully, many of them are saved. 
the soldiers who are supposed to be keeping guards of the prisoners on the boat en route decide that the best plan of action is to kill all the prisoners, which wonderfully they don't. And all of this has happened before Paul has even got to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, with all of that history in the background, Paul's under house arrest, waiting for trial for things that he's not done. That's what's happened when Paul says, what has happened to me? But look at the text. How much of that does he share with the Philippians? Doesn't go into any of that, does he? Even this loving church family who care for him so much and continue to do so, he doesn't wade into all of the detail of all of the suffering that he's been through, as horrible and as difficult as all of it was, because that's not his goal. His goal in life is not to have a comfortable life. His goal, verse 12, is that his life would advance the gospel. And that's a choice. That is a deliberate choice that Paul has made. He has chosen uh, to view his life through that particular lens. He has deliberately decided that they are the scales by which he is going to measure his life. He has decided that this is the yardstick against... You pick whatever metaphor you like. The point is, Paul has a way of looking at his life... And for him, the filter for everything else is that the gospel is advancing. Everything else is secondary. So Paul's goal for life is not to get married, have 2.4 children, make board level by 40, and live in a lovely house in the suburbs building up a comfortable pension. If any of those things were the main goal in his life, he would have every reason to be really anxious and worried and sad and miserable about the fact that he's in prison for a crime he's never committed. But they're not his goals, and he's not miserable. Because there's one goal that has gripped every single focus of his life, like a laser focus, and that goal is still being accomplished. This isn't stoicism, and it's a big word, but you know it when you see it. Um, Paul's not like a life doesn't hurt me, just soak up the pain and don't let anything show kind of guy. He hurt when you hit him. He didn't deliberately look for the most painful way of having a Christian experience because he, he thought that that was a good thing to do. However, he deliberately chose to serve God wherever God would send him. And he trusted that on all of those ups and downs and downs and downs and downs and ups and downs and downs, God is sovereign over the entire thing and using Paul every single step of the way. Now, in all sorts of ways, our circumstances couldn't be more different to Paul's. I get that. None of us are chained to a Roman guard awaiting trial. But all of us have got to choose what the goal of our life is and how we will then view everything else through that ultimate goal. That's not just a a uniquely apostolic thing. That's an every Christian thing. So what is the ultimate goal in our lives? 
in one sense, it's hard to know, isn't it? Because, you know, Sunday morning, my ultimate goal is Jesus. Thursday, Friday, busyness of life. Oh, it's a bit harder to know. Well, one way, one way that we can test that from time to time is how do we speak? For out of your heart, the mouth speaks. How do we speak like Paul speaks here? When we're talking to one another about what's going on in our life, is the very first thing that comes out a, a litany, a summary of all the things that have gone wrong in our life. Because actually, what it's revealing is not that life is hard, because life often is. We live in a fallen world. And what I'm saying here is not to suggest that we aren't supposed to be drawing alongside one another, caring for one another, and all of those things. And you can't do that unless you know. Please take that in the round. But if you listen to enough of your own conversations, what is your heart revealing as you speak? Is it that actually your ultimate goal is all of those worldly things that we're seeking to try and get safe? And we can't. Not in this world. Too many things are too fragile. Too many things are beyond our control. And all of that leaves you with that sense of insecurity, But also, if that's your only goal, a focus on only those things will leave you spiritually discouraged. What Paul shows us here is that is there a better and a more godly way for us to live our lives? Our great purpose in this world isn't isn't to enjoy an easy life. That's going to be our experience in the new creation. Our goal for now is to advance the gospel. It is to hold on to that as our ultimate goal in all of the different ways that that will be lived out in our different circumstances. And for you, that might be in your marriage with a husband or wife who's not yet a Christian or with your family who aren't yet Christians. It might be in the workplace. It might be in the school. It might be in 101 different kinds of places in which we seek to advance the gospel. But if that's the ultimate goal, then our hands hold everything else more lightly. If you're in the workplace and your ultimate goal is to see the gospel advance and you know that if you say something about a particular policy or a practice, you could well suffer in your career. That's the window where this comes up again. What's the ultimate goal? Is it to advance my career? Or is it to advance the gospel? You can trust that God is doing his work in the injustice and the suffering just as much as in the fairness and the joy because we know who God is. That's the first thing. Loving Christ most, longing for others to love him, that changes how we view suffering and injustice. But what does that actually look like? And that's what we get in verses 13 and 14. We're going to spend most of our time here. It changes how we act in suffering and injustice. So verse 13 describes what happens now that Paul's evangelistically trying to bless non-Christians that he's around. And verse 14 describes how he blesses Christians who are emboldened in their faith because of what they see in Paul. Both of those things, we need to see first of all, are directly a cause of him being in chains. So verse 13, as a result, meaning of all the things that have happened, the fact that I'm in prison, verse 14, and because of my chains, 
So the first thing we need to see that God is at work not in spite of. This isn't God had an A plan. Somehow something scuppered that that was off God's radar. Now Paul's in prison. That's a bad thing. God's somehow going to do something good out of it anyway. All of this is God's plan. God is working not in spite of, but through and because of. You could flip it around the other way and say, these blessings are only happening because of the suffering. That couldn't be more clear in verse 14. Paul had um, wanted to preach in Rome for years. And why wouldn't you? If, you're, if you are the apostle to the Gentiles, if you can see that God's heart for you is to preach to a particular group of people and you could get to the capital city of that empire and see the ripple effects of that message go out through the empire, that's where you want to be. And I'm sure in all of Paul's prayerful heart for this great city, he envisaged himself perhaps on the outside of, of the Colosseum or on the steps of the Pantheon, preaching boldly to everybody who could possibly hear that Jesus Christ has come and is, is offering salvation to every single person who believes in him. Well, God's plan was that Paul would preach the gospel in Rome too, but not there. It was inside Caesar's house. Now, you stop and think about that for a minute. How does a Jewish convert get to preach the gospel in Caesar's house? And not just in Caesar's house, but to Caesar's elite soldiers, the Praetorian Guard, they are, they're the SAS, Delta Force equivalent. These are the hard nut guys. So how does a Jewish convert to Christianity get to preach the gospel to the Roman equivalent of the SAS? Through Paul being falsely arrested. And that is a choice that Paul then makes. Not to fight against that injustice, not to complain about all of the suffering. He chooses to invest in the place God's put him in order to be a blessing to others. And it wasn't just an evangelistic opportunity. Verse 14 tells us that Paul's imprisonment, it gave fresh and, and deeper courage to all the Christians in Rome. And we need to see who these Christians are as well, because it's very easy to think this is all about other Christians, you know, the full-time Christians like James and Matthew. Look at the, the people that are described here. They're the ordinary brothers and sisters in the church. They're the mums and dads and the, the workers and the everybody who's part of church life. And their confidence, middle of verse 14, didn't grow in Paul. See, what's not happening is all the members of the Roman church are looking at Paul, this Christian leader, and they're growing in their faith and confidence in him as their leader because, look, he's managing to persevere in the face of all these trials. Verse 14, they became more confident in the Lord. They were looking at Paul being sustained by his God-given faith in the face of all these trials and looking at him grew their faith in the giver of Paul's faith. In God himself. And in that confidence, end of verse 14, they dared all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. That's gospel logic for you. That's not world logic. That's gospel logic. So you have freed Christians looking at imprisoned Christians 
who become more confident in their faith. You, you look at timid Christians looking at suffering Christians who lose their fear. That's the paradox of persecution. That is gospel logic at work. And what I want us to do is spend some time applying that in three very specific ways. First one is this gospel logic idea. God has so made us as human beings that we grow in our faith in him and in our courage to speak the gospel by looking at the perseverance of suffering Christians. So I'm just going to take it for granted that every single Christian in this room wants to grow in their faith. And we want to become bolder in the way that we share the gospel. And there's lots of ways that God has given to us that enable both of those things to happen. One of them's right here. It is to look at, learn from, watch, and listen to the godly perseverance of our brothers and sisters in the face of suffering and trial. So when did we last do that? I want you to see this link of this gospel logic. In order for us to grow in our faith in God and to become bolder in our witness, there are many ways that God uses to do that, but one of them is through the testimony, the the life story of other Christians who've persevered in that place. So are we using that means to grow in our faith and our confidence in the gospel? I asked um, my home group this week, conscious that for, for lots of us perhaps, That's something that you've not thought about doing before. So I asked my home group um, which books and stories of other Christians have they read that they found really, really helpful. And and there's um, a little image with some of the titles that different members of our home group have found helpful. If if there are, are lots of other ideas, though, that you would like to think about, then go and ask your home group this week. It's home groups on Wednesday. Why not have a couple of minutes in your home groups this Wednesday saying, what other biographies and stories have you found helpful to listen to, to grow your faith in God and your confidence in the gospel? And if you've got kids in your home and you've not yet discovered the Torchlighters series uh, on the internet, um, speak to any of my girls or speak to the Kriegers who introduced us to them because they are a brilliant way of introducing children to the amazing courage of men and women through the history of the church. Second way I want to apply this text is for us to be aware of the devil's lies. When we go through a season of suffering, if you experience injustice in the world, the devil will hit you with all sorts of temptations. One of them, and there are many, one of them will be that because we can't serve God where we'd like to be, We can't serve God at all. So perhaps ill health has stopped you personally from being able to serve in the ministries that you would like to in your life. Perhaps injustice has forced you to leave your own country and all of the ministries where you were busy serving in. Maybe the suffering of your spouse has put pressure on your marriage and neither of you are able to serve in the way that you would love to serve. All of that is really, really hard. 
And the devil makes it harder. Because the devil jumps on board and says, well, if you can't serve God there, you don't need to serve God here. If you've ever wrestled with any of that, take a long look at Paul's experience here. Nothing would have thrilled Paul more than to be able to stand outside one of those centers of that vast city at the epicenter of the empire and declare the gospel. Here he is under house arrest with a rotating cycle of Roman guards attached to a chain. Paul knew that God hadn't benched him. This isn't some accident that was escaping the sovereign plan of God. God has put him exactly where God wanted Paul to be. And he knew that every single circumstance could be redeemed for the Lord's sake. So don't fall for the devil's lie of, I'll serve God when I'm in a better circumstance that suits me more. Or I'll serve in a church when I'm in a a better church that does more of the things that I would like to do and I can serve there. That's the devil's manana, manana. And we all know that manana never comes. Don't listen to that temptation of the devil in all of the suffering and injustice that we may think and not Be willing to serve here because we're hankering after serving there. I read one commentator this week who captured this so powerfully that I want you to see this quote. Never again will we have the chance to live for him in this moment. Never again will we have the chance to please him in this circumstance. Never again will he be gladdened by our trust in him which is shown in the face of this test. Do not miss the opportunity to serve now because you are longing to serve somewhere else. And that brings us to the third application. We have to choose to invest our suffering. There isn't a direct line, as it were, from suffering to spiritual fruit. It's not a direct line. It's a junction in the road. And it's a choice for us as Christians to decide which path we're going to take. There's one path that is going to lead towards frustration and a self-centered pity in which all of our focus becomes, I'm not where I want to be. And there's another path that says, this may not be the path that I would have chosen. But God's still sovereign over this. And I'm going to use this season to serve him. It might not be in the ministries that I would have chosen. It might not have been with the people I would have chosen or in the place that I would have chosen. But God's put me in all of your circumstances here. And now we can choose to invest. Now, I say all of that. I know that's a really big thing. (laughs) to say 
and that there is masses more that needs to be unpacked, really, in order to think about that further. So can I commend a resource to you? If, if you're in that space and you're wrestling with that struggle, can I encourage you to read a lovely book called Invest Your Suffering? It's written by a man called Paul Mallard. Um, he and his wife, Edry, they're coming to speak. Well, he's coming to speak to us at our church anniversary in March. And he's going to be doing the Saturday and all of the events on the Sunday. He's written a number of books, and all of them are helpful. But if you're wrestling with that question of how do I choose to invest my suffering, that's a great place to start. If you know anything of their life story, Edry has been in a wheelchair and has struggled with significant health conditions ever since the birth of one of their children. Paul is now retired. That gives you a sense of the length of time that they've suffered. He writes from that experience of the need to choose to invest your suffering. Third and final thing we need to learn are in verses 15 to 18. Loving Christ most, longing for others to love him too, it changes how we respond to suffering and injustice. In these verses, Paul introduces us to a third group of people. So the first group of the people were non-Christians that he got to share the gospel with. Second group of people were Christians who were encouraged in their faith because of his suffering. Third group of people are Christians who wanted to harm him. And we can't shy away from that. Paul's not describing some group of people who pretend to be Christians and hold themselves out as Christians, but actually when you saw their life, you realized they weren't really Christians. These are real Christians. They're part of the group, verse 14, that he refers to as his brothers and sisters. In verses 15 and 17 and 18, he tells us they were preaching Christ. They're preaching the gospel. All of us are familiar enough with Galatians and 1 Corinthians to know when Paul sees people who aren't preaching the gospel, he hits them hard. Because what matters most is the preaching of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And that's what's going on here. So their methods, right? They're preaching. And their message is right. They're preaching Christ. But their motives are all wrong. Verse 15. They preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Verse 17. They preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. We don't know anything more about what is going on here than that. I cannot tell you what their ambition was and why they felt threatened by Paul, or what it was that they thought that they could be envious and jealous of. If you want to read the commentaries, there's a whole world of interesting speculation. I'm sure some of that is true, but Paul doesn't tell us, because that's not the point. The point I think we need to wrestle with is how it could have made Paul feel. Remember everything that has happened to him in getting from Jerusalem to Rome. He's writing this with a hand in a chain to a prison guard. And he would rightly have expected that if he was going to be sharing the gospel with these prisoners who are not Christians and whose job is to look after him until he faces trial, he knows he's going to get pushback. He knows they're going to give him grief. And he can enter that with courage and prayerfully engage with them for the gospel. But now he's got fellow ministers who are preaching the gospel with the very specific goal of making life hard for him. I prayed about this a lot this week. I think if God had sustained me to this point, I think this is where I'd have broken. If I'm really honest. I think maybe the Spirit had sustained me 
I could have got through outright opposition from people who hated Jesus and all the death threats and all of the shipwreck and all of all of that. But then to arrive in a city, which don't forget, about five years before this, Paul had written the letter of Romans in order to encourage this church and discover that many of the leaders of those churches were intentionally preaching in such a way as to make life hard. I think that would have been what broke me. But not Paul. And what changes is not only that he is more godly than I am, but verse 18, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. How could Paul say that? It'd be very easy to say, oh, it's because he was an apostle. It's because he was endowed with an unbelievable gifting of the Holy Spirit. And he's just different to us. And in a sense, of course, those things are kind of true. But that's not what is at the basis of this resolve. The reason he can say that is because there is not a hint of Paul in Paul's ministry. Not even a sniff. His entire preaching ministry, every way that he pastored and cared for people, was so completely focused on others hearing about Christ so that Jesus could be lifted high, that's going to glorify God, so that sinners could be saved, that's going to glorify God, that's going to be for their eternal good, so that Christians can be built up in their faith, that's going to lift up Jesus and be for their eternal good. The only thing that mattered in his life was that God be praised and people be saved. And because his ministry was only about Jesus, he could genuinely say, what does it matter? That weighed on me <laughs> this week. And in all the different ways that we all think about our ministries, personally, in the church, outside the church, all the many ways that God has equipped you to serve him. I wonder if all of us need to hear that same convicting message. Is there too much of me in my ministry? Or is it so completely focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ that come what may, what does it matter if Jesus Christ is preached? What does it matter if I don't have the career that I'm hoping for? Or any spouse? Or my husband or wife has a significant life event that completely transforms the whole of our marriage like Paul and Edry's? Or, or, or. They are real things. Please, please do not mishear me and say they do not matter. They do matter. What I want to encourage you, what Paul is encouraging us, is how we can be equipped to make the most of all of life in order to advance the gospel. And, and here's the thing. Hannah reminded me of this when we were thinking about this yesterday. If we fall for the devil's lie 
of making our eternal security and, and the things that really matter to us in the things of this world, in the house, the career, the, the pension, the families, whatever it may be, we will always be insecure. Somebody shared with me recently that one of the downsides to having a nicer car is all of the steps you have to put in place to then try and protect it because it's likely to get nicked. So you have to spend more money here, you have to spend more money there, you have to put in extra gadgets and all this kind of stuff. And that, that's life, isn't it? Even the, well, the one blessing, it ends up bringing all these other things that end up just growing them out of stuff that you're worried about. What if our one ultimate goal, I don't mean that there aren't other goals, but what if our one ultimate goal was to see as many of our friends and family in heaven forever? And the Lord can use us to do that wherever he places us. He might put me in a prison. I wouldn't like that. I wouldn't choose it. But I pray that you would be praying that I would make the decision there to invest that for God's glory. To reach a group of people I otherwise would never meet in order that they would live for God's glory. That's the purpose of living for Christ first and him alone. Father, we confess that we do not find it easy. Suffering is hard. We are surrounded by injustice that rightfully brings us to tears. Father, we pray that you would so fix our eyes on Christ and on the eternal home that he has won for us, where there will be no more suffering and no injustice, that we would be stewards of every moment of our lives. Father, please, would you help us not to buy into the devil's lie that this world is all that we have, and therefore everything that matters we build and strive for in this life. Please, Father, would we be people who are so longing for others to know Jesus that we would seize every opportunity, whether they are joyful or whether they are painful, in order to tell others of him. For we long for them to be eternally safe too. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.